Well, it's, uh, it's fitting that on this Father's Day, I'm going to be talking about Acts chapter 20, because we're just going through the book of Acts. It's kind of taking a long time, I know, but we're, uh, we're taking our time with it. No reason to rush when exploring the Word of God. Amen? But most of this particular chapter is Paul's fatherly farewell words to his sons in the faith, uh, the men who were serving as elders in the city of Ephesus. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn to Acts chapter 20, um, but we'll also, I'm sure, I'm not totally sure, but I think we'll probably put the verses up there, Acts chapter 20, a few at a time. Um, I usually use, by the way, maybe I should say this more frequently, but I usually use the ESV uh, translation of the Bible. I don't always use it. Sometimes I'll pull the message, which is really a a paraphrase, but just because there's some fun interpretations in the the message Bible. But usually it's the, the ESV translation of the Bible. And as I usually do, I'll just walk us through the chapter, a few verses at a time, and just make some comments along the way. And we'll see where it goes. All right, so the first verse in Acts chapter 20 says this. After the uproar, I'm not going to talk about the uproar. Chris Waugh did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about the, uh, just the riots that Paul uh, evoked in different places, uh, fun stories in Acts chapter 19. But after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So what comes out in these two verses to me is the work of Paul to encourage, right? It's kind of a generic word, but to encourage the disciples. Now, a disciple is another word for Christian, or else really it should be or follower of Christ. A disciple is one who is emulating Jesus in every way, following the footsteps of the master. A disciple is somebody who is learning to live like Christ. And I think in the first century, there was no such thing as, um, you know, someone who is a Christian, but not a disciple. Really, they're, they're synonymous. A real Christian is a disciple of Jesus. So a huge part of Paul's ministry was encouraging these disciples. And to encourage, this is just a kind of dictionary definition here, to encourage simply means to inspire with courage, um, to attempt to persuade, to urge, to spur on, to stimulate Uh, to foster. It's what I'm doing right this very moment with this sermon with you guys. I am trying to encourage you. Hopefully you will walk away encouraged to continue even more with all your heart to uh, serve Jesus and to persevere. Now, Paul, of course, did this work of encouragement by teaching the word and by being an example The work of encouragement, however, isn't just for apostles, right? It's actually for for all of us. It's not just for pastors or priests or for leaders or elders. It's, It's actually for all. We're supposed to encourage one another. I'll give you one verse, Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another Every day, another version of the Bible says, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. And here's why. In the verse it says, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. These verses here bring out the seriousness of the work of encouragement. You know, it's not just 
something we do, like this little nice thing that we do to try to pep, you know, pep people up and, and make them happy. Uh, we speak tailored words that stir people to keep going in the faith. We remind them of who Christ is and of eternal realities. We testify of the works of God. We warn them about pitfalls. We affirm them in their good works. We tell them that God sees the good that they do. We demonstrate a life of devotion to Christ. We spur them to life and good works. Just this morning, I looked up the word spur. You know, it, I mean, we kind of use it in a general sense, but it's sort of a, you know, if you've watched those old Western movies, right, where the guy on the horse, uh, it, you know, has that little sharp, well, here's the definition, a device with a small spike or a spiked wheel that is like on the back of the boot that is worn on a rider's heel and is used for urging a horse forward. Wow, it's intense. It's pretty... <laughs> That's what we're called to do for each other. At times, like don't, don't, don't be in that mode all the time. <laughs> like every time you come over, you know, just with a small spiked wheel in the side, you know. But, but actually, we, we kind of need the, the little spike in the side sometimes, don't we? And sometimes sermons can be like that. But sometimes just spending time with a friend can, can be like that. Iron sharpening iron and just kind of, you know, have you ever just talked with somebody for a while and and then they say hey, can can I just can I just say something and and they just, they just give you the spur they give you the spike right in the side and it's like oh man I needed that and it kind of moves you out of your lethargy well this work of encouragement combats the very real propensity for Christians to become as Paul says hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, which refers to kind of what happens when a Christian is deceived into practicing sin, and that happens. Sin hardens the heart, and a hard heart is the opposite of humility and contrition and godly sorrow, you know, the things that kind of maintain our close relationship with God. A hard heart is dangerous. How many in your Christian walk have had a hard heart at times? Okay, how many of you are liars? <laughs> I have definitely allowed my heart to, to grow cool, to grow hard in certain seasons. And it's not a good place to be. And usually when your heart is hard, you just don't care. You just don't really care that your heart's hard. That's the dangerous thing about it. And um, it leads to really not caring that we're far from God. It eventually leads to not even believing in the Lord. So encouragement can help prevent believers from getting a hard heart and from falling away. So let's be all about encouragement. All right, let's look at a few more verses. Verse three, there he spent three months and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Bar Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days." You're thinking, what am I going to say about this? I, I just have a few, like, just comments here. <laughs> a couple of things pop out to me in these verses. The first is how incredibly diverse this traveling missions team was, right? These were disciples from all over the known world, including Asia and Greece and Palestine, and the brotherly unity that transcended their cultural differences, I believe, was a powerful witness wherever they traveled. It was unique. It was different. Jesus in the gospel uh, broke down those cultural barriers. It was one of the tangible ways they demonstrated the gospel. The second thing I, I see here, maybe because it's on my mind lately, is the flexibility needed in missions work and in ministry. It is human nature, I think, for most of us to be creatures of habit, right? We just want things to be predictable, 
Uh, we like things to go as planned. Um, but in the, in the work of mission and ministry, there can be regular interruptions that require us to pivot, uh, to improvise, to shift our approach, and even to change our location physically. And the pandemic, of course, is like the perfect example of this. Suddenly, churches couldn't do what they used to do, right? And so they needed to adapt. And what appears outwardly to be unstable, I just want to say we can trust is actually a precise plan of the sovereign Lord. And then I was just thinking of how Ren Church, over the years, we've been in existence 20 years. We started in really in 2002, the summer of 2002. Wren Church has met in over a dozen locations. Roger and Jackie have been in all of them. Uh, the Haitian Church on Penn Street, the Columbus Theater, the storefront on Broadway, the dance studio, a hotel, elementary school in College Hill, Armory Building on Benefit, Conley Wharf, the storefront on Westminster, the warehouse space at 77 Res Ave, my house for a few weeks. That was not a good season. Um, 184 Broad, here we are right here. The old church school on Warwick Neck. Uh, the Rumford Towers that I was in a few weeks ago, or last week, I should say. And the Athletic Center on Pontiac Ave. I'm probably forgetting two or three. But at the time, through the years, a move can feel disrupting and inconvenient. But I've seen the big picture. I've seen over time how every location we've met in was a part of God's strange but perfect plan to reach new people. Amen. So flexibility is good. All right, let's look at a few more verses, picking it up at verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And this is so fun, really, it's kind of tragic and not really fun, funny, but it's fun to read, okay? <laughs> he prolonged his speech until midnight. I don't know what time he started, but this was a long sermon. Some of you are like, how long is this sermon gonna go? Look, this is nothing. This, is, this, this thing went on for a long time. Uh, I don't know why this verse was included, but verse eight says, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. I don't even know what that means. Okay, so they weren't sitting in the pitch dark <laughs> just listening to a sermon. Maybe that just would have been weird. I don't know. And I don't know. Just, but a young man named Eutychus, it seemed like maybe a teenager, young adult, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. So those of you who are asleep right now, it's Okay. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. The end. No. <laughs> third story, that's high, right? Our, I mean, we don't have screens or anything. Sometimes I worry because when the windows are open, people sit on the little ledges. It's a second story window. You'd probably get hurt. This is a third story window. And he fell and died. But Paul, his sermon interrupted, uh, went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, I guess the whole ordeal made him hungry, I don't know. He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. So he kept, imagine that, okay, somebody's raised from the dead and then <laughs> Probably gave a little jolt into the meeting. Like, God, God is real. <laughs> All right, let's go. Keep going. Keep preaching. This is good. This is good. And they, they kept talking and, and spending time until the sun came up. That's a long, it's an all-night all night time with, with God. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now, I don't think this story was a typical day in the life of the first century church. This was a spectacular moment, wasn't it? It was unusual, even for the first century. 
Even in the book of Acts, we have 28 chapters of all these crazy things that happen. And not that all the spectacular things were recorded, but I think the most spectacular ones probably were. Um, but it wasn't like these things were happening every single day. I mean, you're talking about decades of time that the book of Acts spans. But it does show that God was at work doing supernatural things when he wanted to. Again, it wasn't the norm. Christians died in the first century. They got sick. Tragedies happened. I mean, a lot of Christians were killed in the first century. Uh, this was a tragedy that, that occurred. Uh, Eutychus was probably a teen or a young adult. He was someone's son. Falling from a third-story window is no, no small thing. Uh, I mean, it, it was probably intense when it happened. I kind of picture... Uh, him falling out the window, and uh, Paul, of course, stopped preaching and probably rushed to the window. People rushed to the window to see. Probably people ran downstairs. This was not a good moment. This was a scary, scary moment that happened. Uh, but God brought the boy to life, and I think God just wants us to know that he can do what he wants when he wants and is not bound. God is not bound by natural laws. Let's pick it up at verse 13. Going ahead to the ship, we, we who's we, right? It's Luke wrote the book of Acts. Um, so, and he was and really a first-hand eyewitness to these things that were happening. That's why it's so detailed. Probably Luke carried around a little uh, pocket travel journal and wrote all these different things because uh, it's incredibly detailed. Um, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But So we set sail for... Assos intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, uh, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. Again, what flexibility, right? And they're just constantly moving around, having to make decisions, having to adapt. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, uh, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, even though he loved the people of Ephesus, uh, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. All right, so my question when I read this is, why does, I just kind of stood back and said, why does Luke, the writer of Acts, share all these details, right? Why do we need to know all this? Um, you know, if Luke had an editor, I wonder if the editor would have been like, yeah, you don't need, this is too much. This is too, too many unnecessary details. Like, cut it, cut it down. Make it more succinct. But one thing these details, if you just kind of step back from them a little bit, but one, one thing they do is they kind of prevent us from thinking the book of Acts is just this, you know, storybook. Or that like, yeah, these are the things that happened. These are the things we were told. And so we wrote these things down. You, you it reads less like a storybook and more like the newspaper, doesn't it? Like a historical narrative. There are details, facts, minute details of missionary travel. I mean, we're told of the specific names, which as a preacher drives me crazy because I don't know how to pronounce most of them, but we're told that names, specific names of people and the specific towns, which I also can't pronounce sometimes, and exactly like how many days they were in each town. To me, it just speaks of the kind of historical reliability of the scriptures, and especially the book of Acts, we're dealing with uh, Luke, who was literally there in these places, just writing these things down, recording these details. Now, verse 17, I'm just going to comment on this one verse. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. The elder. It doesn't mean the old people. <laughs> it, it means the, the leadership of the church in Ephesus. Elder is really synonymous with pastor in the New Testament. Uh, the elders mentioned here were likely mentored by Paul himself because Paul spent years in Ephesus. They were the leaders of the churches that probably met in houses. 
You know, we think church, when we think church, we think of a uh, big church building and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, packed into it and, you know, one pastor in front of everybody. And, you know, that's kind of more of a modern thing. But in the, in the first century, first several centuries, actually, um, churches were smaller. Churches met underground. Churches met in houses or small spaces. So these elders, they were just the leaders. There probably were two or three uh, leaders, elders in each of the, the small house churches. Um, some say there was maybe 500 Christians at the time in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was big. It was actually bigger 2,000 years ago than Providence. Think about that. That was a major, uh, major hub, a major city. So there were likely dozens of small neighborhood uh, house churches all over. Um, like picture just how, imagine if we didn't have cars and we didn't have electric bikes and scooters and all that. You know, I mean, probably, sure, maybe we'd try to come together once in a while, but it would be like, okay, College Hill is really far from Oneyville. And Oneyville feels really far from Cranston. And Cranston feels far from, you know, we probably would just have our, our small community geographically based in our neighborhood. And I think that's what we're dealing with. We're not talking about pastors of huge mega churches in the first century. These were elders and pastors of small communities. Now, Miletus was actually kind of far away. It was like probably 50 mile, a 50-mile walk, 30 to 50-mile uh, walk. So Paul was asking, this was a big ask. He was asking all of the elders to drop what they're doing and to travel three or four days on foot to come talk to Paul and then travel back. I mean, we're talking about over a week, maybe a 10-day trip, all the expenses and cost with that of traveling and they had to take care of their responsibilities. But it says something, doesn't it, of Paul's relationship with them. They knew this was important. Paul is kind of summon, summonings, I can't say that word, uh, summoning us to come to hear something he has to say that's important. And they went. I mean, again, these were Paul's sons in the faith. And now we come to the heart of this chapter, Paul's message which is really what most of this chapter is about, Paul's message. And this is a little bit of a longer passage. I'm just going to read it, read it through, uh, picking it up in verse 18. He says this, when they came to him, he said to them, this is what he said. I'm sure they connected, you know, and, you know, uh, ate meals or whatever. I don't know what, what they did, but at the right time, this is what Paul's message was. This is what was on his heart to say to them. All right? You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, like I said, it was for years, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that, imagine God promising this to you, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Oh, thank you, Lord, for that word. Okay, great, it's really encouraging. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Can you imagine when he said that? What? This is it? Our meta is he going to die? Is he what do you mean we're not going to see Paul ever again? But he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. And he says this again, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
So let me make some comments on this incredible message. And that isn't, there's even a little bit more of his message that will, I'm just kind of breaking it up here. But I believe Paul is saying all this to set before them a clear example of the kind of lives we should live, that they should live as shepherds of the flock of God, as leaders. And we know Paul emphasizes in some of his letters. For example, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or maybe your version of the Bible says, follow me as I follow Christ. But notice that the whole tone of Paul's words is, is pretty sober, isn't it? He, he's not saying, you know, I've lived a, a nice and happy life and, and you should do the same. Uh, he's not saying he was just a good guy, a good person. He says his life has been marked by tears. He had constant death threats. His enemies wanted him dead. He, you know, he was, I mean, if you read in Corinthians, he really describes it in, in much more depth. Just the suffering, he was flogged uh, five times. I mean, he, the guy suffered a lot. But it didn't stop him. There's the perseverance. There's the faith. There's the, the courage to keep going. Paul was an example of that. He had, he didn't, nothing stopped him. He didn't hold back. He poured out to both Jews and Gentiles. And even though God promises Paul not, you know, his best life now, your best life now kind of idea, you know, um, I just, you know, your life is going to be smooth and easy. But God promises him afflictions and imprisonments. He tells them how he embraced this plan for his life. He kind of, just like Jesus, embraced the cross and kind of kissed the will of God despite its difficulty. And Paul did the same. And he said his driving concern was just to, to do what I've been called to do, to do the will of God. And I hope that I'm like that and I hope that you're like that as well, that you constantly are asking God, what is your will for my life? I don't mean like, what's your big plan? What, what vocation do you, I mean, we think of it like that. I'm talking about like the, the lifestyle that the Lord wants to craft into us, the person that he wants to form us to be. Not the vocation. I mean, that's part of it and where we should live. And it, it, that's, that's kind of a small percentage of it. Like what we actually do as a vocation and, and where we live. Uh, sure, those things are important, but really it's who we are. It's our character. It's the kind of life that we live. We should be uh, passionate about that. And this was Paul's passion, to spread the gospel of grace to as many as possible. I mean, that's it. Nothing else mattered. And he says twice in kind of different words, but that he did not shrink from preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God, which means he talked about love and mercy, but he was also talking about the judgment to come and the wrath of God and the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the call to do good works and to do justice in the world. It was, he covered it all and he didn't hold back, whether it was popular or not. He spoke truth always, and his words did infuriate. <laughs> they infuriated the religious crowd. They infuriated even uh, pagan idolaters and business people. He infuriated the culture. He infuriated people inside the church and outside the church. Uh, and in some ways, we could say probably he wasn't very popular, though the, the ones who were serving the Lord loved him deeply. Paul was, in so many words, um, kind of giving them one last vision of the life they were called to live. And I'll just say this. It's easy for not just pastors, elders, but just even leaders as uh, volunteers in, in, in church work, and which you know, kind of most of us are doing some level of 
uh, giving to the church and volunteering, but it's easy for us to feel entitled, to feel unappreciated, to just to want the easy life, you know, to even to kind of exploit a church community uh, for gain or for personal profits and different things like that. Um, this is happening all the time. You know, we won't get into the different stories, but it's a temptation for all of us. And so thank God for this example that Paul is giving to us. Well, then he, uh, he continues on, and I would say he shifts his words in this last section with straight-up fatherly exhortation. He's no longer just sharing his story, but he is bearing down on them with strong admonition. He says this in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Whoa. You know, Paul makes it clear that uh, they didn't get themselves into eldering or pastoring. Uh, Elders and pastors do not appoint themselves or at least shouldn't. They are not appointed by Paul or by people. Uh, The Holy Spirit himself made them overseers. That's what the text says. Note the added phrase, which he attained with his own blood, that gives the exhortation a heightened seriousness, doesn't it? They are entrusted to care for the treasured possession of God, the church, purchased by the very blood of God, The church is the object of God's affection and elders are called to watch over it. That's an awesome thing. That's why the Bible says, don't be too quick to, you know, I mean, if you want to be an elder, you're you're desiring a good thing, a noble thing, uh, that's a good thing, but don't, don't do it lightly. It's kind of a heavy, you know, it's a heavy calling. But the call here is to pay attention This means to notice things. It means to be aware of the things that are weighing hearts down, uh, to be aware of the things that threaten to diminish spiritual life, behaviors, theology that is not in alignment with the word of God. A good shepherd is is very aware. I mean, just even in the natural sense, uh, a good shepherd knows the condition of each, each, uh, what do you call it? Sheep? Sheep, yeah. <laughs> sheep in his flock. And is very aware also of wolves and sheep's clothing, which we're going to talk about next. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, now this is a metaphor, right? Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This has been a problem for 2,000 years. Now, remember that in the first century, you know, the ancient world, they were very familiar with the realities of being a shepherd. Um, It was a common profession, and everyone kind of witnessed that in the countryside. The illustration is graphic, isn't it? Without going into detail, we can use our imaginations. Everyone knows what wolves did when they came amongst sheep. They didn't come to play or to sniff the sheep uh, or to steal some grass or something. They came to kill and devour. They would often pick off the weakest sheep in the flock. They were vicious. And Paul is saying that after he's gone, this is a sober warning right here. After he's gone, and you're, you're not going to see me again, Paul said, there will be men even within the church who will seek to spiritually devour some of the most vulnerable and weak members of the flock of God. This is actually a huge theme in Scripture. The greatest threat to Christians is not the world but it is the wolf in sheep's clothing. It's the Christian ministers who are devoid of the Holy Spirit and who espouse false theology, deceptive theology, 
Paul's warning them that this is coming and they better be ready to deal with it. Jesus put it this way, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Verse 31, Paul says, therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day or day to admonish everyone with tears. He wasn't giving them new information. This was, on, this was probably a regular thing that Paul kind of spoke to them. You know, Paul worried, Paul almost like prophetically seeing these savage wolves, fierce wolves, you know, coming in to infiltrate the church and corrupt her with its uh, immorality and with its bad theology. Again, I mean, here we are, 2,000 years. I think Paul would have just a heart attack if he came on the scene of America and just looked at just the absolute flood of bad theology and immorality that's happening in in our day. So this is very relevant to us. But the exhortation here is to be alert. And I think, you know, it's, it's an exhortation to, again, to pastors and elders and leaders, but it's really for all of us. It's not, we're not talking about physical alertness, but spiritual alertness. To be alert is to notice things that are happening. The alert gardener, some of you work in the garden, right? Notice, the alert gardener notices when a rabbit is vandalizing the crop. He notices even the smallest insects that are, causing trouble. The alert coach notices if one of his players is having trouble at home or just seems down. The alert father notices when something is wrong with one of his children. Spiritual alertness comes from, it comes from spending time with people, but it's not just that. It comes from spending time with people, but also listening kind of reading between the lines. But it also comes through prayer and just praying for people. Sometimes, you know, I'll think someone is fine and then I'll start praying for them and I'll start, you know, I'll start feeling things, start seeing things, start feeling like a certain uh, spiritual concern for them. And that's because the Holy Spirit knows all things, right? The Holy Spirit knows what's going on in, in everyone's life. Um, and so when we pray for people, we really begin to, um, that's a way to be alert. So Paul encourages them to remember that for three years, night and day, he had admonished them with tears. Admonish just means to warn. He warned them with tears. Can you, can you picture that? The Apostle Paul, just tears streaming down his cheek, just warning them that these savage wolves would come in, not sparing the flock, and would try to ruin the church and shipwreck people's faith. He persistently warned the believers that false teachers would arise and deceive many. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Matthew 24, says Jesus, Jesus says, um, <clears throat> then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise, lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased. I mean, are we not living in this day? How much more can lawlessness be increased? I mean, I don't even want to ask that question because just when I thought we had reached a limit, you know, 10 years ago, now it seems to be going even further But Jesus said, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So it's not so much that Paul is saying here in Acts 20 that the elders themselves will fall away, though that is possible, but that they are shepherding people who will be attacked by wolves and will be subjected to spiritual onslaughts intended to pull them away from Jesus. The war for souls is real. For those of you who have been around uh, Renaissance Church for, well, like Roger and Jackie, from the beginning, 
I mean, Nate and Becky have been with us for almost since the beginning. Uh, and some of you, I mean, we've, we've felt it. We've seen how people come and, and make starts and seem to be doing well and maybe they get baptized or, you know, they seem to be growing in the Lord and something happens and they fall away from God. I mean, it's one thing if they move away or they go to a different church, that's fine. But I'm talking about people who fall away from God. The reality is many who are involved, even deeply involved in church life, fall away and perish in the end. Not everyone who starts the Christian life finishes it. And I know that opens up a whole can of like theological discussions and all that, but I think we just need to look at it for what it is and realize I've seen that through the years. I mean, I've baptized probably hundreds of people through the years. How many of them are following Jesus today? Not the majority of them. Well, verse 32, wrapping it up here. Paul says, now I command you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And he kind of gets in here with, uh, and it says it got money, uh, but not just money, but as it relates to elders and pastors. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, <laughs> clothing. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So in the course of Paul's ministry, we know that he was supported at times fully by the church uh, especially as an apostle, when you're traveling or doing missions work, you kind of need to, it's, you know, be hard to, to work on the fly. I mean, maybe today you could, you could work remotely uh, from wherever, but uh, especially as a traveling missionary or apostle, there's a need for support. But then there were other times where Paul just worked and his vocation was making tents and he did it well. And he even seemed to have his own business and could employ others and support the needs of others around him. And Paul seemed to be choosing in different seasons what he would do. It was probably ideal in a way for him to not have to make tents 40, 50 hours a week so he could really devote himself to prayer and ministry of the word. But there were times when his credibility was under fire or, you know, like he talked about in 2 Corinthians, these super apostles, these, you know, there was a lot of, even in the first century, there was a lot of people who were capitalizing on the movement, exploiting the Christian church, the super apostles for gain. So Paul just wanted to combat against that and just say, you know what? I'm not even going to accept a penny from the church. And he would just work his own way. And even beyond that, he would work and work hard enough so he had plenty and overflow so he could even give back to the work of God and give to the poor. Wow. I mean, that's how committed he was to removing every possible stumbling block people might have to receiving the message of God. Well, my last piece is this, and I just have a few more minutes left. This is my last section. Um, last two, three verses say this. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. It's kind of sweet. It shows the depth of Paul's fatherly love and affection for these young disciples. I mean, it says that there was much weeping on the part of all. Wow. Can you imagine the scene? I mean, it might have been 20, 30, 50 grown men crying and embracing and kissing. 
Um, Paul, Paul, I'll just say this, Paul was no professional, mere professional minister. He was a father. 1 Corinthians 4 says this, I do not, this is Paul speaking, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Imitate me. So Paul cared for these men like sons. There was a deep brotherly bond. And there are things, I think we all understand this, right? There's things that bond, kind of bond people together, right? I mean, I've never been in war, but you know, we hear the stories of soldiers being in uh, battle together, you know, risking their life, losing friends, uh, just how that can really uh, bond people together for life. But even athletes, some of you have been on sports teams that have worked hard for several years, um, and it just kind of brings you close together. People that have worked on a, maybe an epic film for five years, just night and day, spending time, there can be really close relationships. Um, but I think this kind of thing should be present within church communities and uh, ministries more, more than any. And it's not just spending lots of time together that knits people, but I think it's suffering together, right? It's coming alongside each other in, in our suffering and sacrificing together, persevering together that knits your hearts. And in the case of Paul, with these young men, it was even deeper and if hopefully you can kind of get this concept here, but you know he, Paul likely talked about this in Galatians four nineteen, travailed to bring them to spiritual birth and maturity, and that process of praying and travailing for people has a way of unleashing the very love and affection of God in us and through us for other people. There's a profound spiritual dynamic to that. And so we start caring for people the way God himself cares for them. And I say this to encourage us to, to pray for each other. Um, because it's common in relationships to uh, become tired of people. Do you ever get tired of somebody? Maybe you're tired of me. But we can even become agitated toward people. Um, we can start to not like them, even. I mean, this is the human condition. Spending more time with people doesn't always result in, in, in liking them or feeling more fond of them, right? <laughs> Relationships can get stale. What keeps our love and affection burning is praying for each other. So if there's a brother or sister in Christ in this church or even in your family or outside this church that you're really struggling to love, I just encourage us, pray for that person. Pray until God's love and affection wells up within you. I always know that I'm in the wrong when I'm feeling, you know, feeling kind of ill toward somebody. I'm not talking about like, I hate this person, or just, but like, I don't really want to be around that person. You know, just kind of, I don't really like that person. You know, I can, I can get like that. I'm human. You know, I know you're like that too. I hope. God, am I the only one in here? I hope not. But I know it just, it, but it doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit well with me. And the Holy Spirit doesn't let me oh, that's fine, you know, you don't have to like everybody. The Holy Spirit doesn't come along and just say that. No, it just doesn't feel right because even if that person has done bad things or wrong things or they, maybe there's reasons that I don't like the person too much, but it never sits well. And so, you know, you pray it through because I know that I'm thinking differently about that person than God is. Do you know what I'm saying? Even though we try to think that, I'm sure God thinks just like me. God probably doesn't like this person either. 
I mean, look at the things that are this, that, this, you know. I mean, right, God? I mean, you know, we kind of think he's on our side. And, but that doesn't last for long. We know that, no, God, God has, you know, God has a way of, uh, I mean, Jesus was the friend of sinners. He could look beyond all of our junk, all of our sin, and see the potential. And that's how he wants us to be. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love. We do pray, just on this last note, we do pray about that, that we would see people the way you see them, that we would even see our enemies. I think that's what uh, blows us away about the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus is that even those who are enemies, you call us to love to love our enemies, to give them a cup of cold water, to be kind to them. I mean, you said even the pagans know how to love those who love them, but we're called to be like the Heavenly Father who loves everyone. And so, Lord, we don't have the ability to do that in our human nature, in our sinful nature. We are just, we are not wired that way, but we pray for the supernatural love of God to be released into us, that we could love the way you love. So Lord, I pray, for, I pray for myself in this message that I would be a good elder. I pray for the elders in this church and the other leaders and staff in this church, Lord, that you would shape us and guard us and make us men and women who are filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom and that we would emulate Paul as good leaders. But I pray for all of us that we would be examples to one another. Change our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you guys for listening. Happy Father's Day. Maybe I'll see you next week. See you in two weeks. <laughs>